fourth season of God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any parallels with the gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm film critic and fallen angel, Giles Goff. And I'm source maker and supernatural detective, Phil Coleman. And for the third episode of our mini-season looking at horror, we'll be looking at Constantine, Francis Lawrence's 2005 supernatural drama starring the one and only Keanu Reeves. We'll be looking at the origins of Mammon, the Spear of Destiny, the difference between angels and humans, and why the devil is basically a git. <laughs> yeah. It's also worth noting that towards the end of this episode, we'll be talking about Christian attitudes to suicide. If some of that is difficult for you at this time, then I'll leave a note in the description of the time code to skip. If you want to come back to this episode later, or if you want to just leave it completely, that is fine. We love you anyway. Phil, what did you think of this film? I loved this film. I just think it was so much fun. It, it reminded me of a video game. I know yeah. that sounds daft, but like it's that kind of film where you think, like, hmm, I didn't know you could use a, a beetle in a in a box to be able to ward off demons. Let's light this thing on fire and burn all these demons today. It just seems like it's like <laughs> watching an idea for a video game mm-hmm. come to life in film. I think it's a really cool film. I just think it's a lot of fun to watch. I think it's quite good. Do you know one thing that nobody talks about is... It's a very sexy film, isn't it? It really is, actually. Like, flipping heck, Rachel Weisz and Keanu Reeves on camera at the same time, and you're like, all right, guys, tone it down. I I need... I feel like I need to go for a a breather here, you know? I'll I'll be in my bunk. Yeah, Yeah, it's just... um... Yeah, there's, there's a lot of very good-looking human beings in like, that, um, like in Rachel, that film. Like, Rachel Weisz at any time is always gorgeous, but 2005 Rachel Weisz is... Whew, good Lord! It just, I'm just like, well, you just tone it down. <laughs> tone I've, got it stuff down. To, I've got stuff to do I can't, for the rest of the day. I can't spend my time thinking about 2005 Rachel Weisz. It's just it's too much. And, no, then, I've got, and they're being I've got twins. I've two, two Rachel Weisz's in one film. That's not fair on anybody, you know? No, no that's double Rachel Weisz. <laughs> you know? <laughs> But anyway, yeah, no, I really enjoy this film. It is very good. I remember not being super fussed about it first time I saw it. This time I watched it and it just smacked me around the head a bit more. Really, Mm. really kind of got to it. I don't think it's perfect film. I think it feels a little bit anticlimactic in some areas. Mm. Um, Well, some anticlimactic towards the end. But it's still got quite a bit of a crack to it yes it's it's so stylish mm. that's something i really saw about it. yeah did you notice like some of the the shots of hell and the way they the way it's is like a destroyed urban area that looks like somebody has been looking at the artwork for terminator 2 do you know what i mean yeah. awesome <laughs> now it's time for <gasps> Phil's Facts! Phil's Facts! Constantine is a 2005 American superhero horror film directed Mm -hmm. by Francis Lawrence in his feature film directorial debut. Written by Kevin Brodbin and Frank Capello, it is based on the DC Comics Hellblazer comic book. Mm -hmm. The film stars Keanu Reeves as John Constantine, a cynical exorcist with the ability to perceive and communicate with half-angels and half-demons in their true forms and to travel between Earth and Hell. Mm -hmm. The look of Hell was based on old footage of nuclear tests, specifically uh, the sudden shockwave immediately after the blast that disintegrated anything in its path, right. hence the crumbling landscape. Okay. I thought that was fascinating. And as soon as you read that and you think back to the film, immediately I'm like, obviously. Yeah. And I think it's realised really nicely. 
yeah. the film as well. According to an interview with the AV Club published on the 28th of August 2017, Peter Stormare came up with his own costume design for the appearance of Lucifer. The off-white linen suit with tar dripping down his feet are specifically mentioned. The producer and the director had initially wanted leather trousers, bare-chested, <laughs> a dog collar with spikes and tattoos over Stormare's face and chest. And do you know something? I'm really glad Peter Stormare had his say well, and got his way because mm, that's one of my favourite parts of the film yeah. is that Lucifer is presented like that. It's a bit first base, the uh, the leather trousers, isn't it? You know, It's a little, yeah. bit, a little bit on the obvious side. What's interesting is... Obviously, so if, I, if I'm going back a bit, Hellblazer comes from like the Vertigo comics, and Vertigo comics exist in the same world as Sandman. They're an offshoot. They're an offshoot, they? yes. Yeah, so, okay, right, okay, so that's it's, fine. It, it's like it, DC owns it, and they are nominally in the same world, but... Yeah, they, no, they cross really. over. It's a little bit strange when reading some of the early Sandman, and there's like, oh, we're now going to the Justice League Tower, are we? Oh, okay, fine, all right, that's... that. Yeah. <laughs> And obviously, the the TV show Lucifer that's out at the moment is, again, inspired from the Vertigo Comics version of, of Satan. So the way this one comes out with the white suit and the tar dripping, you get that sense of perfection, but also just creepy as hell. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Dude is rocking some serious Harvey Weinstein energy from some of that stuff, you know? That's a good parallel, I would say. Yeah, yeah. It, He has power and knows exactly how to manipulate it. Exactly. You know, it's, it's, it's frightening and yeah. very creepy. Yeah. So, there's a scene where Constantine wraps his hands in a cloth, lights it, and sends demons attacking Dodson, Rachel Weiss's character, mm-hmm. back to hell. The cloth is seen prior briefly and without explanation when Beeman is in loading his bag at around 19 minutes in the film. This cloth is supposed to be a piece of the burial shroud of Moses. Beeman's explanation of the cloth when he presented it to Constantine was actually cut from the film. Right, okay. That's why when he lights it on fire, it's like, it's just a bit of cloth. Like, there's a lot of, must be a lot of booze on that, do you know? Like, <laughs> like, how many, how much cloth was there if people have been just doing this over the centuries? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, how big was this shroud? It's not a sustainable <laughs> resource, that's all I'm saying, you know? Yeah, it feels quite finite, really, doesn't it? <laughs> In the comic book Hellblazer, on which the film is based, the character mm. of John Constantine is actually from Liverpool, England, mm. and is drawn to look like the singer Sting. In the film, the character is from Los Angeles, California. Uh, it's widely believed that the change was made specifically for Keanu Reeves, but the truth is, the original script retained his nationality but got no response from producers, so the writers changed him to be an American, mm. and lo and behold, the script quickly gained attention. And do you know what? They got such a kick in as a result. Oh, yeah. You know, I don't think I've ever read Hellblazer. I've I've seen John Constantine turn up in a in a Sandman comic once, and it it got such a kick in for for not being set in Liverpool and for him being mm. an American character. Now there is a an element of validity to that criticism in the sense that Liverpool and just being British has its own unique identity, which is kind of getting mm. whitewashed when you turn it into a, into an American thing. But if you view this piece of work in and of itself, it is phenomenal. You have to criticise something for what it is rather than what you would want it to be. In the original script, Father Hennessy was supposed to die of overeating and getting thinner the more that he eats. Mm-hmm. The scripted death was inspired by a character in the first issue of Hellblazer who died the same way. I've got to say, I'm quite glad they changed that because 
that might have been a bit much. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I can imagine it being very impressive yeah. to be able to get that right on screen, but I just think it's a little bit too much. Doing it this way was cheaper, you know? And, yeah, 100%, uh, yeah. And, and you get the same point across. Uh, I thought it was really cool the way they did it in the film, though, where it's like no liquids coming out of the bottle, even if he smashes it and stuff. Yeah. Like, I just thought that and was really course, interesting. And of course, that works as a practical effect, doesn't it? You just, you just, yeah. You're just smashing an empty bottle, you know? And yeah, I thought the way they did it in the film was perfect, to be mm. honest. Anyway, that is me. That is all my facts. Fantastic. Okay. Hello, dear listeners. It's me, Fleabag Fangirl, and your second favourite strawberry blonde Aussie, M. Watkins. I'm here to tell you that God in Film now has a Patreon page. Win. That means you can show your support for the team and access tasty bonus content. Go to Patreon and look for the God in Film podcast. There are scripts for every episode and the special God in Music podcast, where Giles, Phil and Sefa Ahiagu Agri go through their top 10 mainstream hits with a gospel parallel. Here's a quick taste. What's supposed to do now? I've just watched my boss ascend. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I, might, I, may as, I may as well go grab a couple of cans from the offie. Oh, the gospel according to Phil. What uh, <laughs> can I say? That's just. To be fair, that is pretty much what the disciples did as well. The disciples were were cowering in a in a room in Jerusalem when Phil came in and said, "Hey, lads, I picked up a couple of tinnies. Yeah, let's." <laughs> Don't worry, I got I got us some bloody Stella, but it's the it's the little Stella, a bit hard up at the moment. Oh dear! <laughs> Become an active Patreon supporter, and your pence, pounds, and dollars will be put to the best use, keeping God in film alive. And if that's too much to ask, well, it doesn't cost a thing to tell someone about the show. I love these guys. They're my favourite film geeks with fresh insights on famous films and their thought-provoking chats are just so much fun to listen in on. Support them on Patreon and we can all enjoy New God in Film forever. Ever. 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 Now, today, ladies and gentlemen, we got a guest who is really quite something. In my head, she's podcast royalty, but she would get (laughs) super, super uncomfortable with any kind of high praise like that. She wrote a piece for us in Film Stories Online, for which we are eternally grateful. Thank you. She was just... A brilliant guest. I'm going to let her introduce herself. Okay. Hello, I'm Anne, and I'm from the Verbal Diorama podcast. Um, it is such a delight to have you on the podcast. I've been really looking forward to interviewing you ever since we we, we met on Twitter. Let's get right to it before you, get, you die of any more of embarrassment. <laughs> Listeners, you can't see this, but her face is actually going new and interesting shades of red uh, as we speak. It's, it's you know? just that I've never been asked to introduce myself on someone else's podcast before, so I just I didn't really is, know what okay. to say. That is okay. So let me get you onto some more, slightly more familiar and comfortable territory. Okay. What are the origins of the character John Constantine? Well, first of all, I will say I'm not a John Constantine scholar. So the mm-hmm. only real knowledge that I have of Constantine is of the Keanu Reeves Constantine. Because why else would I be interested in Constantine? So Constantine as a character, the character of John Constantine, he actually first appeared in Swamp Thing Volume 2. Um, number 37 in June 1985. He got his own series in 1988, published by DC. And originally, the series was supposed to be called Hellraiser, but it was revised to Hellblazer because of Clive Walker's movie Hellraiser, which came out in 87. Mm-hmm. And then by issue 63, this was March 1993 time, it became a Vertigo Comics title. And Vertigo at the time were the more adult 
side of DC. They were kind of leaning more towards the horror influence of, of DC's comic universe. Um, yeah, so Sandman's a, a, a Vertigo one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that's uh, Neil Gaiman. Uh, yeah, that's love right. Neil Gaiman's work. Uh, one of the earliest bits I found of Constantine was in Sandman. So I thought that Neil Gaiman had created the character of Sandman until your episode on Constantine put me right. Well, I am basically recycling information from my episode on this. That is so, totally fine you by know, me. But the character of Constantine, I, I find him quite interesting because obviously the original character, he's Liverpudlian, he's blonde-haired, mm-hmm. he's still like an occult detective. He's yeah. still morally questionable, but he is not really Keanu Reeves. Um, that is very Especially true. in looks. I mean, let's be honest, Keanu's incredibly good-looking guy. It has been mentioned. <laughs> By uh, you, yeah. I, I, in every I episode of your podcast, I, I mentioned how good-looking Keanu is. Yeah. yeah, I think the reason why I like this character is that it takes these kind of supernatural, occult, magical kind of scenarios, but it also makes the character morally questionable. He's basically doing things technically for his own selfish gains there's a lot of manipulation there's a lot of deceit Mm -hmm. and you know characters will regularly haunt Constantine he was like he continued to be a supporting character in Swamp Thing and he did turn up in like you say Sandman he turned up in Lucifer Green Arrow you know all of those kind of DC comics titles and the actual movie plot was taken from a two particular runs of Constantine primarily. So they were Original Sins was one and Dangerous Habits was the other. Uh, Original Sins was the collection of Hellblazer's first nine issues. Uh, and it actually didn't sell very well at the time of its release. But it followed John Constantine through his early cases, cases involving demonic yuppies, ghosts, the kidnapping of his niece and assortment of demons. So that was uh, the late 80s when Original Sins came out. And then in 1991, when Garth Ennis started writing for Hellblazer, um, that started with Dangerous Habits. And that is basically John's diagnosis and acceptance of terminal lung cancer, which Mm -hmm. is, again, another really important plot point in the movie and basically builds up to one of the, the greatest scenes in the movie as well, with Satan and yeah. the amazing Peter Stormare as as safe as Lucifer. I, I often get confused between the two characters. I know they're not technically the same, Satan and Lucifer. No, no, Sa- but... Satan and Lucifer are the same person. Oh, are um, they? Okay, so, didn't know that. <laughs> um, Lucifer is his, is his original name. Lucifer basically means the morning star. Satan basically means the accuser. In Jewish ter- terminology, you could use it in, in a court as Ha-Satan, so there would be an accuser, but the accuser is Satan. So Lucifer, Satan, the devil, all the same guy. Think of it this way. Lucifer is like Anakin Skywalker and Satan is like Darth Vader. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. So yeah, that's basically a very condensed history of Hellblazer and the character of John Constantine. So how did the movie itself come about? Well, this is a really interesting story, actually. This movie came out in 2005. At the time, you know, superhero cinema was really kind of coming into its prime sort of thing when you were when you're talking about like comic book adaptations specifically. Mm-hmm. 
But the story actually starts in 1997. And okay. uh, it's a guy called Michael Aguila. And he left Paramount to join Warner Brothers under producer Lauren Shula Donner. And Lauren Shula Donner is incredibly important yeah. when it comes to comic book adaptations. Because Michael Aguilar, he was developing the uh, adaptation of X-Men. Nicolas Cage at the time was kind of the number one choice to play John Constantine, which if we think Keanu Reeves is a weird choice, I mean, <laughs> Nicolas Cage is an even weirder choice, don't you think? I love Nicolas Cage. <laughs> you know, he's so, he's just wonderful. He's so enigmatic. And the story basically goes forward from from the release of x-men x-men very much changed the landscape of comic book adaptations you can go back to something like blade which was obviously a huge success in 19 uh, 1998 but really x-men was the catalyst for for the current wave of comic book adaptations you know going into like 2002 when spider-man came out how huge spider-man was and warner brothers obviously had a roster of dc characters that they could pick from which obviously includes vertigo as well and at the time in 2002 they basically decided they wanted to do five tentpole movies a year they wanted to up their output and they felt like the current slate of movies was lacking. And at the same time, Keanu Reeves was up for this role, um, but there wasn't a director attached. So in comes Francis Lawrence. And this is before he obviously took on like the Hunger Games and he became quite a big director. And yeah. he'd only really been known for music videos as well. And Keanu Reeves, I think, is the sort of actor where a lot of people just assume that he just kind of rocks up. He gets accused of not being a very good actor, which I think is bull. To be honest, I think he is a mm -hmm. good actor. I think he chooses his roles really well. And I don't think he gets the credit for the roles that he chooses. But he was really involved in discussing this character and building this character. Because I think he knew that he wasn't exactly what the comic books suggested. And yeah. he did a lot of work behind the scenes. It's him and Francis Lawrence spent nine months to a year talking about this character and building this character up. And he got praise from uh, Lawrence publicly for his dedication to this role. And it's a role as well that he still talks about to this day. He absolutely loves this character. He wants to go back to this character. And I love the fact that you could say that Keanu Reeves can't act, but in a movie like this where... The character of Constantine is coming to the end of his life. Like, he knows he's going to die. You know, he's saving all these souls for selfish reasons just on the off chance that he might go to heaven. I love the fact that this character knows that he's running out of time. Mm -hmm. And I think Keanu Reeves pulls off this character pretty perfectly. This is a brilliant cast in this movie as well. You know, you've got like Tilda Swinton as Gabriel. And mm -hmm. you would think that that was a really weird choice to cast Tilda Swinton as Gabriel. But she's perfect. I've never yeah. seen an incarnation of Gabriel like the way Tilda Swinton does it. No, she smashes it because they because they get the character to be so androgynous, yes. you know, which is what you which is what you want with angels, really, you know, that that sort of neither this nor nor that kind of yeah. thing, you know. And she's she's phenomenal in it. I think Keanu Reeves is is the critical view on him. There's been a bit of a Keanuessence over the years, you know. People used to think of him as being quite quite wooden, but I think he's he's such a he's such a leading man. His performances are very internalized rather than the kind of 
showy stuff you tend to see in not trying to be rude but like a Johnny Depp performance you know where it's like I'll put on a silly hat and do a silly voice and then I'm somebody else you know um yeah no I think you're uh, I think I think uh, the the tide of critical opinion has has turned to join you now you know I think everybody <laughs> I think I think for the most part, a lot of people do acknowledge that he's good in the roles that he chooses because he chooses his roles really well. I think that he does deserve deserve more credit for that. But this is a really interesting choice for him. And I really love the fact that he loves this movie and he loves the experience of making this movie and... We haven't even talked about Rachel Weiss. I mean, she's a, she's a goddess. I Absolutely. can't say enough good things about Rachel Weiss. She is in the greatest movie ever made, which is The Mummy from 1999. Mummy. Yeah. So yeah. I just think she's brilliant in this movie. And I love the path that her character takes for her own faith and for her own belief. And I just think it works really well for her and her character and 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 the, the relationship that she has with John Constantine and the relationship that John Constantine has with Gabriel as well. I find that if you really kind of pull apart Gabriel's plan to bring about Mammon, the fact that God accepts human flaws is probably frustrating for a character like Gabriel. And the fact that human beings are selfish and it's something yeah. that I talk I've talked about quite recently on the podcast actually about humans are selfish and stupid you know we we will do things for our own personal gain. Um, we talked about that in in our uh, our dogma episode thinking about it because that's got another brilliant scene where angels are just mad that tr- that humans yes. get treated so so brilliantly, you know. Coming back to something we were talking about about like the critical response to sort of Keanu what was the what was the critical and audience reception to this film? Because it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't great, was it? No. So I didn't actually know the Rotten Tomato score for this movie. I had to look it up. Um, mm-hmm. And it's currently 46%, which, right. to be honest, I feel like is a lot under what I would expect. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I would never say this is a 10 out of 10 movie, despite the fact that Keanu's in it. This is not a terrible movie. It does not deserve the hatred and the vitriol that it got. Nowadays, I think it's seen as more of a cult favourite, which I like. I like that people appreciate this movie now, but I think at the time, DC fans, they just weren't happy because Keanu mm-hmm. wasn't blonde and he's not a Liverpudlian. And to be honest, I'm really glad that he didn't try and do an accent. I'm really glad he didn't dye his hair because I think he fits the character. It's a loose adaptation. It's not meant to be. No adaptation of any comic book or book or anything is supposed to be a straight adaptation. You're supposed to be able to make changes. That's, you know, creative liberties. You know, you're supposed to be able to take them. I think Brits get particularly uh, upset about this kind of thing because we end up with so many of our things being transplanted from Britain and then put in an American setting to sell to an American audience. So there's like High Fidelity goes from London to Chicago to New York. Uh, Candyman is another one that's set in Liverpool in the in the book originally and then it gets moved to Chicago and stuff like that. So I feel like people got so upset about what this film wasn't that they didn't bother to actually just view it on its own merits and appreciate it for what it is. Yeah, you know? I, I completely agree. I feel like a lot of the time, and, and this is this is something that happens, I think, a lot more vocally nowadays with like the internet and Twitter and, oh, I'm never going to watch this because it looks crap. Yeah, but have you seen it? 
no, yeah. I'm never going to watch it. You know, review bombing things um, online before they've even seen it. Just yeah. because this is, you know, this isn't what I like. I don't want to see female superheroes as an example. I'm going to review yeah. bomb this because I don't like it. It's not my sort of thing, you know. But they, Toxic they're not gonna... fan culture oh, is exhausting. It's the worst. Know? And this was one of those movies that I think it kind of had the beginnings of, of toxic fandom because mm. of the, the change of the character from like an anti-hero to a self-sacrificial hero. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I mentioned Peter Stormare as Lucifer and the fact that this character of Lucifer removes John Constantine's cancer just so he can live and mess up. Because Lucifer's like, you're going to mess up. I know you are. So I'm going to remove your cancer. I'm going to let you live your life mm -hmm. so that I can get your soul later on. I just it's... think it's so, it's so, it's such a good way to end that story. It's a beautifully twisted logic. I, and I love that yeah. so much. I love it so Listen, much. Em, I could talk to you again for another hour or so, but I need to wrap this up somewhere. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> such a shame. Thank you so much for talking and thank you for being so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. It's uh, You've been brilliant to talk to. Oh, thank you, Giles. Thank you so much for having me. I've, I've genuinely enjoyed it. And yes, I could, could have talked a lot more about Constantine. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's been a joy. Thank you so much. So, Phil, that was Em. What did you think? She had no reason to feel embarrassed or nervous because she was wonderful i really i really liked her sort of attention to detail mm. with like you know the sort of the source material with yeah. constantine and and just generally i agree that you know toxic fandoms really do ruin it for everybody yeah and it was interesting to note that that was kind of like one of the first instances that i can remember mm where it really did hit home how toxic some fandoms can actually be yeah but yeah no i really enjoyed the interview i thought she was a, i thought she was a great addition to the episode she is absolutely fantastic she's really really giving with her knowledge and also she's been podcasting um a year longer than us and has been and has done like a squinty billion episodes if you get the chance ladies and gents <laughs> once you're done with our, listen to our episode check out verbal diorama scroll through I guarantee you M will have covered the development story of one of the one of the films that you like and she's just such a joy to listen to. Oh, by the way, just talking about the interview, how chuffed were you when you heard about my sort of Lucifer and Satan and Anakin Skywalker and, and Darth Vader comparison? You know what? You smashed it. Yeah. You smashed it. Like if 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 anybody wants a faith expert for any of their podcasting needs or or not podcast for a film, anything really. Get in touch with Giles. Man knows his things. And Giles will come and explain it to you in, in Star Wars terms. It, you know? he, knows, he knows his holy onions. That's what he knows. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's get cracking. Now it's time for... <gasps> Finding the Faith in the Film. We've got a lot to get through. It's actually quite... It's, it, this was basically your suggestion for, um, mm -hmm. for films to cover. Constantine is a Catholic fantasy. And what I mean by that is it takes some concepts that are specific to the, the Catholic denomination of Christianity, which, as we've talked about in the past, is one of, if not the oldest denomination of uh, Christianity. Okay, mm -hmm. let's talk about the first, just the, the, the opening concept, God and the devil made a wager. On the surface of it, that sounds absolutely mental, but it's not, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not it, quite, it <laughs> it's not quite as crazy as you think. There is, there is form in this area. Do you remember anything that we've talked about, about um, 
the character of Job? Uh, I remember little bits, mm. um, but please do remind me because you're again you, your knowledge will be sure okay. fast period. So basically, the idea is that Job is this man who is um, completely faithful to God and um, is is absolutely uh, following God brilliantly and and all the rest of it. That's the that's the setup, and it. I'll, I'll just read to you uh, from Job verse one. Uh, for, uh, sorry, Job chapter 1, verse 6 to 12. So we've had like Job lives in the land of, I want to say Uz, but I'm not sure. Um, mm-hmm. And then we have a scene switch where it switches to heaven. That never normally happens. Do you know what I mean? That's not something we... Uh, uh, that's, quite the, uh, that's quite the match cut. It really is. It really <laughs> is. So it says, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan... Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him in his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flock and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So the story kind of goes from that point. Job kind of loses everything that he has, and he's still he's still praising god you know and then joe you know god's like see told you and then i was gonna say it sounds uh, sort of almost like god was like go on then yeah worst and because i'm pretty sure i'm right he's just like (laughs) kind of omnipotent kind of know how this is gonna play out but all right kind of got that whole yeah knowing thing there's even a bit where after he's lost everything satan's like ah yeah but you know people are selfish so so long as he's healthy, I'm, I'm sure we can do whatever you want to him. And God says, "Okay, all right. If you need to, if you want to be like that, you can. You can give him diseases, but you don't kill him. You know. And then we do. Then we do that. We have um, Job is is like filled with sort of boils and and all the rest of it. And he's surrounded by. You know how you have certain friends in in a uh, in a setting who are just not helpful." You know, like, <laughs> yes, you, you know, he's, he's they're all like, hey, do you know what? You should probably curse God and die. And he's like, no, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. I'm, I'm still going to love God. So I'm sorry, I can't. I'm washing my hair. Yeah, so, uh... you know, <laughs> so obviously we've talked in the past about theodicy. We've talked about the idea of like, why does bad things happen to good people and the rest of it? And Job yeah. is basically a study in in that, you know, Um mm-hmm. We won't get into it too much because we've we've just not got time. The point I'm trying to make is that God and the devil making a bet might sound nuts, but there is some kind of form in this area. Do you know what I mean? He, he does. He does like a test of faith, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah. For, uh, uh, oh, oh, God, there. For <laughs> me, I I do wonder about this because obviously it's written about the sixth century, but there's a suggestion that the story of Job existed amongst israelite culture a lot earlier there's even a suggestion that moses uh wrote it but nobody can prove that and it doesn't Mm. it doesn't quite feel like any other book of the bible it feels just a little bit different you know um so i tend to think of it more i tend to think of of 
of the book of Job more like a parable rather than historical fact. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I think it reads more like a, a cautionary tale, I guess, from what you're describing it. I would say the opposite of Maybe cautionary tale. Maybe not cautionary tale. tale. Uh, more like, like a... I was thinking of something like, like a cautionary tale. Yeah. You know, it has a point at the end of it. Yeah. Is what I'm trying to say, which the point being, look, like a, like believe, a f- believe in God, because no matter what happens, God will still love you. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and it's not, and yeah, it's not, it's not transactional. Now, the next yeah. thing I wanted to talk about was the character of Mammon. You know, from um, the, the who's the the son of the devil? That's yes, that's kind of yes, back, yes. You know, so Mammon apparently. Do you know what it means? Son of the devil. No, believe it or not, all mm-hmm. it means is wealth. That's that's it, you know. Ah. So, um, if any, if, you know, if anything, that's kind of disappointing, really. Yeah, isn't it? just a smidge, you know. I thought it was going to be something like, you know, the dark destroyer, mm. the bringer of the tide, or something like that. But no, it's just wealth. Yeah. Uh, yeah so fun. here's what I think has happened. So the Gospel of Matthew and of Luke both quote Jesus using the word in a phrase, which, when it's presented in English, it reads as, "You cannot serve both God and Mammon." You know. So it does. So that. In the English, as we understand it now, you cannot serve God and and wealth. But what people have done around the Middle Ages, they start to um, personify Mammon as like this prince of hell, um, and right. he's and he's he's like they kind of um, transpose him onto like the seven deadly sins, you know, the um, right, I see. demon of wealth and greed, that sort of thing. You would think. I was going to say, I'm guessing greed. Then, <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, the spear of destiny. When I first heard that, just I thought, oh, okay, that's just a, that's that's just a thing that they've just invented. But I was going to say, I'm, sh- I'm sure, I'm sure I saw that film with Jack Black and Carl Gas. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, no, sorry, I got that wrong. <laughs> so apparently, obviously, when she says, yeah, the spear of destiny, is the you know the the sword, you know, the spear that pierced Jesus' side with, you know. Um, and it's you know what they were like in in Middle Ages and everything. Middle Ages is roughly, roughly, year five hundred fifth century up to the fifteenth century. So you got a thousand yeah. years where everybody's kind of quite, going around going. Oh. I, I, I quite like the term the Middle Ages because it's very presumptuous. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like it, I mean, when's the last ages? Do you yeah. know what I mean? Are you sure this is Defo the Middle? Because you know what I mean. Like, maybe I need to get a move on. Like, yeah. So, do you know that bit about about them piercing Jesus' side with the spear? Yeah, they pierce his side with a spear, and then all that comes out is water. So they do it to well, check that he's dead, right? It, it's, or something it's like that. Blood and water. So there's a separation. So the the red platelets and the the white platelets separate. You know, so it's something. Yeah. Do you know why they pierce his side? I believe it was to check if he was dead or not. Yes, like that. That's my understanding. Of yeah, it, but yeah, yeah. Again, I could be completely wrong. So basically, right? Um, let me let me read from John nineteen thirty-one to thirty-four. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath, because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with the spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Okay? Right. Um, So the name of the soldier who pierced Christ's side with, uh, they call it a launch. Uh, That's apparently another launch. Yeah. 
I'm hope I'm pronouncing that right. I might that's, not that's be. One step away from lunch. Yeah, yeah. Which is well, it gets, it gets it gets even better. Um, so the the name of the soldier isn't given in John in the gospel, but in oldest references to it, the apocryphal gospel of Nicodemus. Do you remember me talking about the apocrypha and how it's like? Bible fanfic, you know. It's Bible. like the append. It's like the appendices. You know, like do you know with Lord of the Rings, you've got like the main stories and you've got the appendices. It's, it's not, <laughs> I don't know why I think of it. Yeah, that way. no, I, I get you. It's not. That's not quite it because an appendices is still something that definitely happened. It's more like extra information, like supplementary yeah, yeah. information. Nicod- like apocrypha is stuff that we're not one hundred percent sure that this is legit. Do you know what it's I mean? Like, it's like the Reddit fanfic forum. Yeah, of the yeah, Bible. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, I um, see. Okay. So the apocryphal gospel of Nicodemus. Yeah, there's there's the late manuscripts of the fourth century Acts of Pilate, and the soldier is identified as a centurion and called, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Longinus or Longinus, making the spear's Latin name Lancia Longini. So it's the the lance of Longinus or the holy lance, you know. The Lance of Longiness. Longiness, yeah. I mean, we could call him Keith for all the difference it makes, you know? <laughs> I, you know what? I, w- I would like to start calling mm. him Keith. Him. So it's, Come on. Yeah. It's interesting <laughs> that, that the, the breaking the bones thing, um, th- there's a belief at the time that Jesus not having his bones broken is a fulfillment of prophecy, okay? So a few hundred years earlier, um, the, uh, the Psalms are written, and then there's this line, uh, I'm going to read out, there's a lovely line, lovely bit from Psalm 34, 17 to 20. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. So that last bit, you know, we'd hear the righteous person and and all the rest of it. But just the idea, like, we know that righteous people have broken bones at times. Do you know what I, I mean? I mean, yeah, like and, that's, that, that's just called being human, right? And, like, exactly. People just could, break bones. Yeah. So the fact that he's saying, the, the, the way the scholars interpret it is that that righteous person is talking about a person specifically and that person is Jesus, you know? Okay. So. The fact we'll see that, that tracks. The fact that his bro his legs aren't broken, and the fact that he dies with all his bones as they should be is seen as like a fulfillment of prophecy. You with me? Yeah, that makes sense. You know? So yeah, so spear of destiny or the holy lance, which or the lance of longinus. The lance of longinus yeah. is <laughs> I'd very much like to wield the lance of longinus against that Jesus fella. That'd be great. Thank I love you. it. So. Then there's that line that Keanu Reeves had, God is a kid with an ant farm, you know? And mm. I, I like that because it's, it's, again, this uh, sort of atheist way of, of looking at God. Now, I had a theory about this, okay? What if that's less of a conversation about uh, God the Almighty? And what about if it is the creator of Constantine himself? What if that's actually, you could apply that to Alan Moore? So do you know anything about Alan Moore? He was the guy that wrote Watchmen, I believe. So he wrote Watchmen, he wrote V for Vendetta, uh, yes, and he wrote, yes. he wrote sort of Hellblazer. And what he tends to do is he famously tends to disown any adaptations of his work 
I read about this actually, mm-hmm. yeah, because he disowned Constantine as well because it yeah. wasn't quite to what he was. It wasn't quite to what he envisioned, I believe. Yeah, and, and obviously artistic integrity is is important. And some if somebody does do a bad version of your source material, that's gonna suck. But the idea yeah. that every version of anybody adapting yourself will always get it wrong, that seems to me. A little bit special. It just feels very egotistical. Yeah, Do you know, like, because I would actually, I think I'd be extremely flattered yeah. if someone took an original character that I had written and adapted it as like their version. Yeah, because you know that means that it it resonated with that person in some way, and and I'm surely as artists, yeah. that's kind of what we're all looking to do. So, like I say, I kind of found myself thinking of Alan, like Alan Moore is God. You know, he abandons his creations unless they do everything he wants them to do. You know, that's an interesting. That's an interesting take, and I really like it actually. And I, uh, I thought with with my death of the author hat on, then I thought that worked quite nicely. You know, uh, bringing the son of Satan into the world, it, they have to use a woman for it. It so ends up being like a perversion of the virgin birth. You know, I thought that was yeah a nice little yeah, parallel. Yeah, I can there. see that. I see that. Uh, did you notice the way God, who never turns up on screen, but he treats angels and humans differently, doesn't he? He does appear to. So, like, go on. Const- like, <laughs> yeah, Constantine spends all his time basically saying, God's terrible, God's this, God's that. And yet, when it comes to it, God's got his back. He won't let the devil take him. And yet, Gabriel, who we assume has served him faithfully for thousands of years, millennia and all the rest of it, Gabriel, who's basically trying to bring about the apocalypse, God kind of abandons Gabriel, kind of takes his, his her power away, their power their away. Power, their power yeah. away. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Um, no, of course. Meant to be androgynous in the yeah, film. Yeah, so, so broadly speaking, angels are always thought of as being androgynous. Tilda Swinton was... Perfect casting. Tilly Swint has got game. Tilly Swint. Tilly Swint's mad game. You know, I couldn't have cast anybody (laughs) better. But I was, do you know what this made me think of? We were trying to get ready for Riley's birthday party recently and we were working out in the garden and there was literally too much stuff to get done. So I got a kid from church to do some weeding for us and he's a good kid. He's a great lad. A little bit of a chatterbox. Oh, well. So, and at the same time as he was doing that work, uh, Riley was in the garden with us, you know. So one is doing a really good job. He's occasionally a little bit tiresome with kind of bending your ear, while the other one runs around doing nothing productive, causing absolute chaos because he feels like it and just wildly giggling to himself. And I mean, that's that's, that, that's just me after eight pints. <laughs> do you know what I mean? like, <laughs> no, I've seen you after eight pints. It's yeah, like, no, it's, mo- it's, it's like much watching, worse. <laughs> it's like watching somebody with a slow-mo on. You're like, oh, hey, what's going on? You know? Just see, the thing is, God's just a bloody, like, he's just some guy of an anthill. Sod it, you know. So what I, what I noticed was, like, my patience for this kid was not nearly as enduring as my patience for Riley is, you know? Mm. Even though one is is objectively doing, being more productive and more useful than the other one. And it's just that distinction that God sees humans as his children and angels as his servants. It's, I suppose it's the distinction between, like, your family and friends and your colleagues or something like that. Like, because you can... You can have different feelings between... You, you can put up a lot more, I think, with, you know, 
the crap, let's say, of like family and friends. But if it's just a colleague, you just think, well, I am going to drop you like third period French, I swear. Do you know what I mean? Like your patience is just, just wanes completely. So <laughs> Love it. I love that. And I love that line after um, after he's hit Gabriel and he said, that's pain, get used to it. And, yeah. and Gabriel's like, you could have killed me, but you didn't. Look how well you're doing. <laughs> I love that it's bit. Like, you could have shot me, John. I'm rooting for great. you, buddy. You can do it, you know. <laughs> yeah, well done. Oh, man, God abandoned me. That's really bad. You know what? That's where she's at. They are at, sorry. I'm, I'm saying she because I know it's Tilda Swinton. Yeah, you know what I mean? yeah. Like, well, it's Tilda Swinton, isn't it? You know, you can't get around Swinton. that. Tilda Swinton. Uh, and I'm pretty sure Angel's pronouns are they, them, he, her, she, him, or whatever they damn well feel like at any given time. They, you know? They're angels. They're, they're sort of... Yeah, pronouns are a human thing, right? <laughs> I guess. Yeah, yeah. I hope so, you know? Yeah. Um, now, this next thing I've got, sub- I've got titled as devil is just a git you know that, uh, <laughs> that scene where he's trying to light the light um constantine cigarette and and he keeps moving the lighter you know yeah. i love that that little pit touch because it's like the devil is not your friend he doesn't have no. your best interests at heart he demands loyalty but it doesn't work the other way around He's basically Donald Trump, but in the spiritual realm, you know? Yes, that that really does make sense. He's, he's kind of like lots of the bosses that I've had in previous jobs. <laughs> <laughs> you know I mean? You've got to do what I say, uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to have fun with it yeah. at your expense. Yeah. And I'm like, well, thanks. thanks I, I mean, I've just got to feed my family. One line I want to talk about was um, Constantine kind of, he kind of, he sort of prays to God. You know, and I feel like John Constantine kind of makes life more difficult on himself than he absolutely needs to be, you know? Oh, 100%, um, yeah. Like, if you just cheer up a bit and stop being <laughs> stop being such a bloody downer, he'd that, probably actually get a lot more done. The only thing I remembered is where he says, I know I'm not one of your favourites. And it just kind of mm. got me because that says more about Constantine than it does about God because this is going to take a while to get your head around, so just bear with. But... I, Giles, am God's favourite. Yeah. And Phil Coleman is also God's favourite. All right? Yeah. The human concept of favouritism is when you treat somebody well at the exclusion of everybody else, you know? But I think God's idea of favourites is... I got to make you feel special. I got to make you feel like you were important. And then I made that person feel like they're important. And, you know, it goes all around. You know what I mean? I I guess in that respect, like, favoritism in terms of, you know, God's perspective would be human beings are my favorite. Do you know what I mean? Like, because that's, you know, it's like... It's like trying to choose a favourite child. You can't, you know, like yeah. at least, well, I mean, I only have one, but yeah. I've heard that I mean, it's very I, difficult to do. I was going to so. say, if if you and I cannot choose our favourite child when we've only got one kid each, then I think we're doing quite badly. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I might need to go and see a therapist yeah. or something, if that's the case. But so. like I say, you're God's favourite. If God had a mobile, he would be showing his mates pictures of you and what you've gotten <laughs> up to now. Do you know what I mean? Look, they do a podcast. It's Belty. <laughs> They mention me all the time. My I'm name's so proud. in the title. I know. <laughs> 
What a bunch of lads. What a great bunch of lads. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, that's, that's quite nice, actually. That's, that that's the way nice. I want you to think about it, okay? That's very good. So now we're going to get onto stuff that's a little bit tougher, and we're going to talk about Christian views on suicide. We're going to talk about suicide in a broad, broader term. Uh, for listeners at home, if you want to skip this bit, that is totally okay. And Phil, if you want to take a break at any point, we can absolutely do that. Okay? Absolutely. Thank you. Cool. Okay. Before we get into this, if you're listening right now and you are struggling with suicidal thoughts, I want you to pause this episode. Depending on which you prefer, either call the Samaritans on 116-123 or if talking is tricky, text SHOUT to 85258. If the situation is not as urgent, then you can write them an email. The address is joe at samaritans.org. Sometimes writing down your thoughts and feelings can help you understand them better. All this info is in the description. So let's get into it. So first thing to know is suicide was pretty common before Christianity in the form of a personal suicide to avoid shame or suffering. Yeah. Best example I can think of, Brutus, after he's killed uh, Julius Caesar, he's kind of chased all over the over the place by like Mark Antony and uh, Octavian, uh, Octavius, and he, Brutus, um, committed suicide, you know. There was also mm. uh, institutional suicide, so like the, when the pharaoh dies, then his servants get killed as well you know and and then the idea of like willing a bit unfair yeah <laughs> and then you know. there's like the willing suicide of widows euthanasia for the elderly and infirm that sort of thing yeah so early christianity established a ban on suicide greatly reducing how often it happens then in the fifth century we've got saint augustine do you remember we've talked about him in the, in the past uh i think so it rings a bell i yeah. just don't know what episode it was yeah yeah i can't remember which or uh, which episodes which anymore sometimes uh yeah <laughs> one second we do a few don't we so yeah we've done we've done we've done a few you know yeah, so anyway in the fifth century augustine wrote the city of god and in it he makes uh christianity's first overall condemnation of suicide and biblical justification for it's pretty straightforward and it's just an interpretation of the commandment thou shalt not kill from the ten commandments you know okay um at least it's simple so yeah it's it's fairly straightforward. <laughs> uh, it, you know, you feel like it should have "thou shalt not kill" brackets, including yourself. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that that makes sense. Yeah, you know, Com- sort of comes with a name. <laughs> yeah. So, broadly speaking, Christians, we are anti-suicide. We don't think suicide is a good thing. We're, we're probably not big fans of it. But this is where it gets interesting. Have you ever heard of a mortal sin? A mortal sin. No, not a mortal sin. Space mortal yeah. space I thought, I thought he said I thought he said immortal, immortal sin, sin. Yeah. I was like plumbing neck that's a sin and a half that, isn't it that sounds um, like a, a, an 80s rock band don't you think yeah <laughs> yeah like an 80s hair metal band <laughs> immortal sin you know um, yes I have I have heard of that yeah so again we're coming back to Catholic theology the idea of a, a mortal sin which is a gravely sinful act which can be led to damnation if a person does not repent of the sin before their death instant hell pretty much Basically. yeah so a sin <laughs> is considered to be mortal when its quality is such that it leads to a separation of that person from god's saving grace three conditions must together be met for a sin to be mortal mortal sin is a sin whose objective object is grave matter and which is also committed with full knowledge and deliberate consent so a mistake cannot be a mortal sin okay 
Um, okay. The sin against the Holy Ghost and the sins that cry to heaven for vengeance are considered especially serious. We talked about the idea of an an unforgivable sin being uh, insulting the Holy Ghost. And then we also said, you don't really need to worry about that. Yeah, I'm sure the Holy Ghost has got a thicker skin than that. I think so. the idea is, you're, <laughs> well, like I say, it is in the Bible. It is There is a biblical thing for it. But I think the idea is you have to really know the Holy Spirit and you have to really turn against him. And generally speaking, people who really, really, really believe in, in the Holy Spirit and Jesus and the Spirit don't do that. So it's not... It's not yeah, really a seems, problem. Do you know what seems I mean? It's pretty cut and dry, doesn't it? You yeah. know? The sin against the Holy Spirit and the sins that cry to heaven for vengeance are considered especially serious. This type of sin is distinguished from a venial sin. That simply leads to a weakening of a person's relationship with God. Despite its gravity, a person can repent of having committed a mortal sin. Such repentance is the primary requisite for forgiveness and absolution. The next important thing to know is that mortal sins and venial sins the rest of christianity don't really believe in that it's just sin bad let's not do that you know let's not so so mortal sins is 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 specifically more of a catholic thing so yeah the idea the idea yeah. of there being different grades of different sins or it. we've talked about this in the past that that sin is just sin bad stuff is bad stuff you know yeah and the 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 metaphor i was always given was would you prefer to drown 10 feet below the surface of the water or two inches before below the surface of the water it's like well, i mean the result's the same <laughs> exactly the results <laughs> the results the same you know it's a it's a it's a one or a zero that really yeah. no matter which way you slice it so so the assumption and the belief was that you can't ask forgiveness for something in advance. You can't mm. say, Lord, please forgive me for punching that guy that I'm about to punch. Because <laughs> if you do that, that's not... It's, it's, there's still a choice, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, exactly. You can also say, no, I'm actually not going to punch him. You know Exactly. So if you plan to kill yourself and then you die, you can't apologize for that in, a, in advance. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, just afterwards, you're just there chatting to God and like, you know something, actually? <sighs> can I take it back? Because yeah. I, I really don't think it was the right choice. It weren't the right choice. So that's, <laughs> that's why the idea was that somebody who kills himself goes straight to hell because they've committed mm. a mortal sin and because they can't ask forgiveness for it. That was the that was the idea. Are you with me? Yeah. And also, do you know what? It was the idea that the belief that I was told when I became a Christian, which is terrifying because you were like, what if I do something wrong and then I get hit by a bus? It's a terrifying idea and it's not it's not helpful. So, I found this brilliant line from Christianity Today and I'm going to I'm going to read it out because I I really liked it. Christians often assume that suicide is an unforgivable sin and that those who die by suicide automatically go to hell. That's a misconception that believes in a transactional view of sin and forgiveness, where if we don't confess the sin of suicide after it takes place, it can't be forgiven. Yeah. But that idea comes more from Augustine and medieval theology than the Bible. Scripture doesn't actually say that suicide separates us from God for eternity. The unforgivable sin is never equated with suicide in the scripture. So, do you ever hear the, the fellow Samson? Yeah, I've heard of Loads that. of strength Him. in his hair, hair gets cut off, no strength anymore. That would really yeah, suck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Samson was blinded and turned to a slave and the rest of it. That's the bit that they, they don't really tell you. And then he oh. was like, he says, like, God, can you please just give me strength one last time? And he, he pushes some pillars apart and brings the 
brings this sort of temple down on his enemies and on himself. So Samson died at his own hand, but he's still included in Hebrews 11 among the hall of the faithful. So that comes from Morgan Lee, who was writing in Christianity Today. Yeah. The, the, the main justification for why suicide doesn't impact on your salvation comes from Romans 8, 38 to 39. And I'll read out to you. It says, this is from St. Paul, right? So he's saying, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what I really like there is St. Paul is saying, for I am convinced, you know, so he's sure of it. But if you imagine, it's like Paul's not saying this is the way it is. He's saying, this is the way I believe it is. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, yeah, I, yeah. and I love that. No, you know, no life, no death, no present, no future, you know. So God isn't there looking for the technicalities going up. Oh, Oh, see, they sinned. Oh, but then they died. So, oh, can't yeah, nah, that. but you see, oh, that, that, see, that fulfills one of the conditions. That, that fulfills all three conditions of yeah. mortal sin. So therefore, no, sorry, no ticket to heaven. Like I said, God loves you. You are God's favorite. The only, the only prerequisite, the only thing you've got to do to get into heaven is love God. Love him and follow him. That's it, you know? And yeah, I heard a brilliant quote because I was asking people about this on social media. And I heard a brilliant quote from, do you remember our friend Dom? Dom Gallagher. The inventor, yeah. as I like to call him. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So he he was taking looking at suicide from like the medical model kind of aspect, and he just says, Christian or not, I'm not sure. Suicide is merely death caused by the illness of chronic depression. In the same way as you can die from kidney failure or heart attack or severe asthma, stigmatizing it only adds new and unnecessary layers of pain to the bereaved. Suicide is rarely an informed choice. It is usually the last resort of an illness-damaged organ, brackets, the brain. And yeah. I, I love that. I just I thought that way of looking at it was beautiful. I, I can really relate to that myself as someone who's had depression for an extremely yeah. long time. Yeah, that can be a concern for me sometimes. Yeah. Like, what if it gets too much for me? But, you know, luckily, I made sure that I have the correct help and medication. Yeah. And, and I do feel as though that doesn't apply to me anywhere near as much as it might have done when I first discovered I had depression. So it, it's, yeah, it's... um. I think that that viewpoint has a good rationality to it, and I think that applies to. to I think that applies a lot more than the idea of mortal sin, especially mm. when you knowing what I know about you know how God is is taught to be in Christianity. Mm-hmm. I just it doesn't tr- it doesn't track for me that he would be so transactional as you say and like the, yeah. for there to be conditions like because apparently as you've said many times before the only condition is is to love him and just follow his follow his teachings that's kind of it you yeah. know what i mean like so literally all it is so i think that's beautiful and i yeah. think dom yeah props to dom on that one for certain yeah i'm gonna go a little bit off the reservation here uh, and i wanted to sort of talk about like some wider thoughts on suicide and how how did christian attitudes to suicide impact the the wider world mm-hmm. it's important to say on this point i have not i have not lost anyone in my family or friends on this issue yet god willing and i am not i'm not an expert on it so please take everything i'm going to say with a pinch of salt and if we we're going to we're going to sort of put this out to people who will listen if they have a problem with it we'll cut some stuff out and if this makes it out to broadcast and you've got a problem with it you let us know you know that's my that's my sort of thought so 
Yeah, we're, we're an open forum and we're we're happy to receive any kind of criticism or problems. Absolutely. So the thing I didn't like was like <laughs> the thing I, I wanted to sort of kick against was the kind of pat response. The if you're having if you're thinking of killing yourself, just talk to someone. Just listen. I'm here, which is all great, but it sounds a bit like the sending thoughts and prayers at this difficult time sort of thing, you know? Yeah, I I couldn't agree more with that. Sometimes you need more than just a shoulder to cry on. Sometimes you actually need someone to assist you. Yeah. Because you cannot think the same way it, when you are when you are completely sane because mm. I, I do believe that it's a a, a, a light form of insanity almost because you're not completely within your faculties yeah um you need someone to physically sometimes be there to be like it's okay i'll take you to a doctor it's okay i'll i'll go and take you to whatever you need to go whatever you need to do yeah just tell me how i can help you yeah so i was thinking about like a cascade effect so that the the particularly when somebody famous kills himself the idea that there is they call them copycat killings but uh, copycat suicides but it's not it's not quite right but if yeah. you have if you lose somebody you love desperately by their own hand and then the church is telling you oh this person died by <laughs> died by their own hand they they can't have a church burial or they, that oh, is yeah. that is going to compound and impact those problems so much worse you know and i thought about like the cascade effect the way that it can one person killing himself can have a, a knock on effect i was when 13 reasons why came out there was like a moral panic about it because they showed the specificity of of suicide and all of it and I, at the time i was like you know freedom of media and freedom of speech and all of it but i now see that putting the idea into somebody's head can be really problematic and yeah and it has and that like i say there can be a knock-on effect so i keep thinking if chris cornell hadn't killed himself maybe we'd still have chester bennington do you know what i yeah. mean chester yeah chester's death the, the lead singer of lincoln park killed himself on the 20th of july so that was two days before my, my wedding day you know and that's the you know the <sighs> it's a lot to process it, especially because i know you really like linkin park yeah. as well and and had a lot of emotional sort of ties to their music yeah and and that's hard that's hard and especially seeing the fact that he was friends with chris cornell as well and you, you just have to think to yourself could things have been different if somebody had reached out and helped these people? Yeah. So I feel like the church needs to be loud and clear about its position on suicide. Let's not create some kind of cascading problem. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you know? totally. And, I agree with that. And I was thinking, again, I was, I was because I'm a serial contrarian, I can't stand <laughs> those posts that say, you know, like, it, it, that are, are just... You know, I'm here to listen in the first of it. And what that's doing is that is the idea of an individual response to suicide. Okay. But I, what I'm thinking about is an institutional response. Okay. So, mm -hmm. what if we treated suicide like a public health problem rather than a, a simple individual tragedy? Go on. I think that's, I think, well, I was going to say, I think that ties nicely back to Dom's point mm. about it being like a symptom of. Of a you know like a, a mental illness, yeah. Most commonly depression, yeah. Um, like that's it, it, I do believe there is a um, it's something that can be 
treated as like a health crisis because especially in you know in the in recent years life has gotten a lot more difficult for yeah. the common person with worries about money and worries about security you know worries about like whether the country you're living in is safe or not yeah. and i'm not just talking about the western world at that point do you know what i mean like yeah. everybody around mm-hmm. the planet and in different sort of like states of war mm. You can see why people would think I have no other way out other than this. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I do. I think an institutional reaction to the epidemic that is suicide, I think it would yield better results in, in terms of prevention. Yeah. Wrap your brain around this one. There were approximately 14.5 suicide deaths per 100,000 people in the US compared to 6.9 suicide deaths per 100,000 in the UK. All right. Wow. So why do you think that might be? Do you think the UK is just a happier place? No. No, I don't think so either. Not at all, no. no. Do we think... <laughs> I mean, I live here. So yeah. <laughs> do, do we think Americans are just generally more miserable? Well, I've spent my time in the, in the States, and I don't, I don't think that's the case. What thing do you think might be significantly different between these two countries that might impact on their suicide rates? Healthcare. Do you know what? That's really interesting. We were, I didn't even think about that. We're going to come back to that. I'm going to hide my answer for a moment because I wanted to talk about coupling theory. Have you ever heard that? I have not. No. Okay. So it, coupling theory, the, the place I heard about it was in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know. And I was fascinated by this concept. So the idea behind it is that when someone makes the very sad decision to commit suicide, it can often be coupled to a particular place or context. Okay. Malcolm starts by giving the example of town gas, uh, which was the, the type of gas they used to use in standard ovens and stuff before the 1960s and 70s. Most homes in Britain relied on a form of gas that contained carbon monoxide, and it became the most popular way for people to kill themselves by sticking their head in the oven, just like Sylvia Plath did in 1962. She dies by carbon monoxide poisoning, and at that point, that was 44.2% of all suicides in England and Wales. They... Criminy. I know, right? <laughs> I know, right? But then Malcolm argues that as town gas was phased out of British homes, the number of suicides also declined dramatically. Why do you think that might be? And the idea is that one of the things that dissuades people from committing suicide is if you make it difficult for them. Yeah. So... When they, when you couldn't just stick your head in the oven to kill yourself, and that made it difficult, and when they put like a, a suicide prevention kind of net over the Golden Gate Bridge, the number of suicides dropped dramatically. My theory as to why the suicide rate in uh, America is so much higher in America than it is in the UK is I think I know what you're say. go for it. I think I think you're going to say guns. Guns, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, like, you can tell me if I'm wrong here. But depressed people, not hyper motivated. Do you know what I mean? They're not, not so like, much. No, okay, I, I, I'm going to kill myself. And I think you could yeah. probably attest the, the, to the fact that when I've been super depressed, I I've, I have a hard time just doing anything. You know, I, you I, know? I don't want to do anything because I can't. I don't have. I, can't, I physically cannot do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean, it affects everything. So if you had a gun in the home, do you think it would have been easier for you to kill yourself? How'd you come to that? I mean, if I was in a in a real manic state and mm. I thought I need to do something right now, 
I can't say with any certainty I wouldn't go for it. And that would be if I was in like a real, real dark place. Now, yeah. I, I, can't, I don't know with any certainty I've ever been there. Yeah. But again, and I don't know if any certainty, if, I can't say with any certainty I'll never be there. Yeah. But I can only hope yeah. and just do everything I can to prevent it. So displacement theory was the idea that if somebody wants to kill themselves, eventually they'll find a way. The coupling theory suggests that people are more likely to kill themselves if it's easier to do so in some way or shape or form. I, th- you know? I think that's. I think that totally makes sense. Yeah, like, like I know from my own experience, when I'm depressed or when I'm feeling really, really down in the dumps, mm-hmm. and I can't, I just can't motivate myself to do anything. I don't want to. I don't want to get up off the couch. I just want to sit and absorb something on the television, maybe or something yeah. like that, for hours. I could stay in bed for hours and hours and hours and, and just do nothing. I'll, I'll text people to say, oh, I, I need to avoid doing things right now because I, I won't be able to. That My motivation is, is, would, is solely based on just being within myself. Yeah. That's how it is when you get depressed. You want everything to be super, super simple. So my, my sort of feeling was we need to take an institutional response to trying to curb suicide figures because if you are and i can only think of teaching here but if you are throwing people at a a massive workload if you are judging their value based on how effective they are with their the students past grades and the rest of it you are creating a situation where people with poor mental health are going to need to find a way out and if you've chipped away at their self-esteem so much and this might be the only way they could think of it you know yeah it does start with those formative years, I think, as mm-hmm. well. Like, if you can teach people good mechanisms of of learning and coping with the stress of that, yeah, from a very, from an early age, you, I feel as though it sets a good foundation for the rest of their lives. Yeah, and it's not focused on because people are more worried about Ofsted scores and and making sure their school looks good and stuff like that. And I'm like, screw your school, <laughs> like just yeah. make sure that the future of our of our our race isn't um, isn't going to be doomed to the the grip of depression you know what i mean like, it just makes no sense to me yeah. but believe it or not in today's episode we're going to quote a line from the quran from the muslim holy book you know interesting <laughs> and it cool. says anyone who destroys a life is considered by scripture to destroy to have destroyed an entire world and anyone who saves a life is as if he saved an entire world and i i can't pretend to be profound i heard that in an episode of miss marvel and i thought that was brilliant that was <laughs> that is from surah 532 and i hope i'm getting that right and it just the idea that when somebody's gone from the world there is so much that they take with them and you can't get it back and anything you can do to make sure that doesn't happen whether it is putting a safety net or if it's about considering the feasibility of a workload for for your your workforce why wouldn't you do those things they're so yeah. it's so incremental it's so it's tiny little things you could do that would just imagine imagine if it's like it's not your job to sort of keep somebody alive forever but you've got to keep them alive for today you know and yeah. then and then maybe tomorrow somebody else can do it and maybe after you know, the day after that someone else can tag in yes yeah, and, and maybe we get to a point where they don't want to do it anymore yeah it's just, it's, it's oh, there's a quote from bojack horseman of all places that reminds me of this i'm gonna find it now <laughs> it gets easier every day it gets a little easier but you gotta do it every day mm. that's the hard part but it does get easier yeah yeah that and when you're in those moments it doesn't feel like anything's ever going to be easy again, does it? You know, uh, I have, a, yeah. uh, I have had depression at some 
points in my life, I have not had it to the same degree that you've had it. So I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm trying to steal something or, or pretend to be part of something that I'm not. But I do have not those. You have those days where you feel like, okay, so there's nothing to look forward to. And uh, I, all the things that bring me joy are bringing me nothing. And yeah. if you just know, it's like, okay, all right, just just ride it out. Tomorrow will probably not be that bad, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's... You've just got to take it day by day. Yeah. On the on the individual level, so I've talked about the institutional. On the individual level, I ask myself, like, are we always the best listeners? And the issue that we have, and I found this in teaching a lot, was sometimes the people who need our help the most are the ones who deserve it the least. Yeah. Um, with my blunt hat on, sometimes people who are depressed or suicidal can be kind of abrasive. Do you know what I mean? I, <laughs> I know that I've been very abrasive when I've been depressed or anxious or anything like that. I, I can be a very, very not very nice person and people, well, their patience wanes and I do I understand why because it's not easy to deal with. You know, the, the image we get in the media of somebody who's suicidal is not like they're, they're sort of leaving a very polite phone message talking about how you meant the most of them and all the rest of it, whereas... Somebody who's suicidal can be drunk, swearing their head off, and trying to swing for you in one moment. You know, so yeah, it's yeah. We have to get this idea that people deserve our help, whether they like us or not, whether we like them or not. You know, yeah, I get you. Yeah, and like I say, I hate that meme that just says, you know, I'd rather listen to your problems than listen to your eulogy. That's not enough because <sighs> because yes, you see that one <sighs> copied and pasted meme but you then need to ask yourself can we be the kind of person that someone knows you will listen to them yeah and let me, let me talk you through what i mean like i have a friend i've seen her recently and she's out she's been going through some stuff and i when i'm talking to her i switch my active listening skills on you know and make the direct eye contact i ask questions that i, I try to be insightful try to and i try to moderate my language i say things like if you don't want to tell me you don't have to and to her i'm probably a brilliant listener yeah um so some people we can be the best listeners and to others we can be the worst so let me ask you do you think the friends and family you have think you're a sympathetic ear if they voted for Brexit? Mm, no. No. <laughs> I wouldn't be giving them any sympathy. So this is my point, was that you need we need to think about our online discourse and the way we present ourselves online and whether we present ourselves to the world as somebody who is going to be listening and sympathetic, even if you make choices that we don't agree with. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Awesome. Just a reminder that if you are struggling with suicidal ideation, then you can either call the Samaritans on 116-123, or if that's difficult, text SHOUT to 85258. I always prefer writing my thoughts down to get a grip on them, so if you'd prefer to write them an email, the address is joe at samaritans.org, and there'll be a response within 24 hours. All this info is in the description. There's also a load of other services that might help, and I've put the links to them in the description. Remember, if you've made it this far into our episode, if you've bothered to listen to us for this long, then we absolutely love you, and I'm willing to bet we're not the only ones. All right, that concludes my very rambly section on suicide <laughs> and the effects on suicide, and that concludes our Finding the Faith in Film section. We have a review. Oh, great. This one comes from Dr. Helen Allen. And oh, oh, very good, very good. She says... Uh, she, she listened to 
uh, an easy listening and brilliantly informative exploration of the Passion of the Christ. This episode added a third perspective of an agnostic into the mix, which was fascinating. It has certainly <laughs> whetted my appetite to listen to the rest of the series. Well, thank you, Dr. Helen Allen. We're really glad you enjoyed it. Thank you, Dr. Helen Allen. <laughs> I quite like saying that. Lovely, that's, that's stuff, quite, lovely that's nice. stuff. Awesome. All right. Listen, listeners, if you have been, thank you so much for listening. And Phil, thank you so much for listening to me talk about a really in-depth and really tricky topic. I really appreciate that. Anytime. That's why we do these things. I think opening a discussion like that and presenting it to people is extremely important. In the meantime, Phil, I can't believe I'm going to ask this. Have you had a good time? Uh, in at some points, yes. <laughs> um, there were some points where it were rather dour, but yeah. I suppose you can't really avoid that. So, awesome! Thank you, guys. See you on the next one. Bye. Bye. God in Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh, and our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Waffle editing by Natalie Minnicker and sensitivity listening by Polly Emily Taylor. Gordon Film is a Dask production. Please rate and review, unless it's a one star, in which case, tell Phil by filling a bathtub full of water, the universal conduit that lubricates the transition from one plane to another. Then get into the bath, clothing optional, and just have a nice long think about the best way to phrase your review. And please don't ask Keanu Reeves to hold you under, because he's really not into that sort of thing. It was just for the film.